The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations from listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely online at kopn.org. Thank you. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hamelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture to find food truth. And today, I am honored to welcome my guest, Ms. Anne Ross. She is an attorney with an advanced law degree in agriculture and food law from the University of Arkansas, where her studies focused on the federal regulation of pesticides and food labeling. Anne's research focused on the health effects of endocrine-disrupting pesticides and the inadequacies in the laws governing the use and regulation of these pesticides in both the U.S. and Europe. She is an advisor of international policy for the Cornucopia Institute. She is based in San Diego, California. She is also an experienced litigator who has handled a variety of cases, including environmental torts and product liability. She's a native of rural South Carolina. She's now in sunny California. She's an outdoors enthusiast, and she knows the law when it comes to food and agriculture. So welcome, Ms. Ross. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be with you. I have a question. You know, it's not often that we see attorneys suddenly find an interest in food and agriculture. What led you down that path? That's an interesting question. I like to say sometimes life doesn't always unfold neatly, so it's not exactly where I expect it to be right now, but I'm glad I am. I was practicing law in South Carolina doing primarily business litigation, and then I went back home after the death of my mother to help my father with his medical practice. And as you mentioned, I grew up in rural South Carolina, and what I saw there was shocking to me in terms of the number of folks with diabetes, the chronic health conditions, and I was really struck by that, so much so that I decided to pursue an advanced law degree in agricultural and food law. And when you think about it, there's really nothing that's more important than our health, and agricultural law, food law, really touches in some way on many other areas of law, whether it's property law, labor rights, food labeling. So I get a little bit of everything with agricultural law. Mm. And I think there are such great opportunities for consumers as well as public health practitioners to better understand the law. So I love that you're my guest so that we can talk back and forth across these fields. I'm curious to know what led to your interest in endocrine disrupting pesticides because they are near and dear to my heart as well. Yes, well, it really was when I went back to South Carolina and saw the just shocking rate of diabetes. And of course, that is an endocrine problem. And that's what led me to think more about, okay, where does nutrition intersect with the law? And from that point on, I decided to look into pesticide regulation because so many of these pesticides are endocrine disruptors and that affects many of our vital systems. And I think that 
in terms of addressing some of our chronic health conditions, we have to look at not only what we're eating, but what's put on the food before it gets to our table. And like you, I'm sure, I'm very concerned about who is really in control of these policies in Washington, especially with regard to USDA and the Environmental Protection Agency. It seems that there is such a heavy hand of industry in controlling what can be banned. I am specifically thinking of chlorpyrifos, for example. We know it's a brain-damaging chemical for children, and we've come close to banning it, and yet industry rears its ugly head, and before you know it, oh, it's being used again. So we do need the law on our side, and we need many more attorneys like yourself who can work in this space. Oh, thank you. I think there will be more. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, your work with the Cornucopia Institute on issues of international fraud, I know that you have spoken about grain fraud and import fraud. And in an interview that you did with another radio journalist, you had mentioned that about 30% of the organic corn is imported and 70% of organic soy is imported to the United States. And of course, that opens avenues for fraud. And that helps consumers get this fuzzy idea about the quality of organics overall. But when I heard that statistic, Anne, I thought to myself, why are we importing any organic grain with all the corn and soybeans that are grown in the United States? Can't we make that switch to organic? Well, I sure would like to see that happen, to have more of our acreage here in the U.S. converted to organic. The organic corn supply has not met the demand here. And as you know, about 90% of corn and soy grown in the U.S. is GMO, and GMO is not allowed in organic production. And for livestock or the meat or dairy that you eat, That animal has to be fed organic feed to be considered organic under the law. So if if we have a situation where the feed has not been grown organically, technically and under the law, neither would be the meat or the dairy that you consume from an animal that was fed non-organic grain. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. If I could just take this topic to my local farmer's market for a minute. And I don't know what the situation is in San Diego, but here in the Midwest, I have found that a lot of our livestock farmers are saying that their animals are fed non-GMO grain. And that's a plus because that means that that grain is not going to be habitually sprayed with glyphosate and increasingly 2,4-D and dicamba. But when I called the feed mill about this, what I was told was, oh, yeah, that non-GMO grain is definitely sprayed with herbicides, but that's not how consumers see it. I think that it's difficult for consumers to understand the difference between certified organic and non-GMO. Right. Uh, I definitely agree with that. And I think it's important for people to know that if something is certified organic, It has to be non-GMO, but organic also includes additional standards that have to be met. Not only must it be non-GMO, 
pest, certain pesticides cannot be used. Antibiotics cannot be used except under limited circumstances. Farmers who are certified organic have certain production methods that take care of the soil and increase biodiversity. All of this is required under the organic regulations. So non-GMO is just one component of organic, but non-GMO alone does not guarantee those other components that I mentioned. Mm-hmm. I think this is an area of great confusion in the marketplace. And of course, probably in your supermarkets too, you've probably seen supermarket aisles labeled natural and organic as if they were one in the same. And what that does is it just opens up a huge area or avenue for confusion in the consumer's mind. And I think I've seen some statistics actually that show that consumers even value sometimes the natural label over the organic label. So legally, we've got some work to do, don't we, in terms of we don't even have a definition for natural. Well, exactly. Natural is not regulated by the USDA, whereas the the organic label is. So any product manufacturer who's using organic has to follow the law. When you see natural on packaging, there's no guarantee what you're really getting. So I think that's important for consumers to know because it's not something that's widely known. Mm-hmm. And with the new labels that are going to be put in place now with regard to labeling GMO foods, of course, consumers have wanted this for a long time. And industry has really fought those labels. You probably have a better understanding of all of the background for this. But just from a consumer perspective, there was like a little code that a consumer could take with their phone and scan it to learn more about the product. And we know that the numbers on a product, if it begins with a nine, we know it's organic. But we really wanted those GMO labels on there. And what we ended up with is a sunny looking label that says bioengineered. What do you want to share with our listeners about these new GMO labels that we'll be seeing more of in the marketplace? Well, first of all, I don't know about you, Melinda, but I'm not sure exactly what bioengineered means. And I imagine there are a lot of others out there as well, at least in terms of when it relates to non-GMO. So that's one of the criticisms of the standard that goes fully into effect in January of 2022 is that bioengineered is supposed to indicate that, that there is some GMO ingredient or the product is derived from GMO, yet there are many people who won't associate the two, that GMO is being designated as bioengineered. So that's one of the criticisms. Another criticism of this labeling requirement is that so many products will be exempted, even if they were derived from genetic modification. So in that way, it kind of begs the question, how much better off are we now with this rather confusing label with so many exemptions? Why not just have non-GMO designated or GMO designated that this is a GMO product, but of course, industry has not supported that. Mm-hmm. In preparing for this interview, I recently watched a USDA video that talked about some of the exemptions. So just to put your last statement in some consumer context, 
one of the exempted products is sugar. And about 50% of the sugar in our marketplace comes from cane sugar, 50% comes from sugar beets. And I believe it's over 95% of our sugar beets are GMO glyphosate resistant. So when you go to the supermarket and you buy sugar in a bag that came from beets, you will not know that that came from a genetically modified sugar beet, but you can pretty much assume that it does. Exactly. Because under this new law, for example, it exempts most GMO foods that have been processed and refined. So that includes a large number of products. And that's very concerning. So for example, this law would not apply to meaning the manufacturer would not have to designate bioengineered. We're talking about meat, eggs, multi-ingredient food with meat or eggs, certain animal feed. And we're talking about a lot of food products that mm-hmm. are not covered. Mm-hmm. Let me take one break because we're halfway through. We're going to get back into that topic in a moment. But listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are joined by Ms. Ann Ross. She is an attorney with an advanced law degree in agriculture and food law from the University of Arkansas. And she is an advisor to the Cornucopia Institute in International Policy. Well, I want to talk more about these exemptions because I think that it's really confusing for consumers if they see an animal product in the marketplace. There's no indication of any kind of genetic engineering feed, for example, that has been consumed by the animal. So, for example, beef, dairy, if those cows received GMO corn or soy, that will not be labeled. The only way you can be assured that your meat or dairy product comes from an animal that has not consumed genetically engineered grain is to choose an organic product. So you mentioned that, that meats will not have to bear this BE or bioengineered label, and I agree with you. People have no idea what that means. So there's a lot of confusion out there. There are so many exemptions that you're right. One has to wonder what really is the value of this label. Right. It's hard to say what the value is with all of these exemptions, but that's right about meat. So the way the law is drafted, it says meat, for example, is exempt because the animal itself had not been genetically modified. So it doesn't even look back to what the animal was fed. And that's why certified organic is the choice that guarantees non-GMO feed was fed to the animal. Mm-hmm. Right. Because, uh, yes. Exactly. And a lot of that imported, this goes back to the imported grain again, a lot of that imported corn and soy is needed to feed those animals, the livestock that we have here in the country. We have a lot of improvements to make, I know. I wanted to just ask you if if you have any more comments that you would like to share about the issue of labeling. I think it's very important for consumers when they have time to really take a look at what's on food labels. There are times when I'm not so good about it, but it really matters what's on there. And there's so many different labels and so many different fields now. You really have to do research to know what these indicating. And some of them are better than others. And as I mentioned, the USDA organic seal is federally regulated. Many of these 
other seals are not. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Now, you had made some comments at the National Organic Standard Board meeting, and they had to do with BPA, a bisphenol. And there was a wonderful researcher at the University of Missouri, Fred Vomsall, who was really the groundbreaking researcher in looking at this endocrine disruptor. And I promised to share a story. I was at a, a gathering and somebody was saying, you know, I was I bought this organic can of beans and I was so disappointed to find out that the can was lined with BPA. So the organic label is fantastic, but it does not limit things like BPA lined cans. Do you see that changing? I don't know that that will change in the near future, but I certainly hope that the National Organic Standards Board will take a close look at this and ultimately make a recommendation that it not be allowed in organic. The trouble is with this is the alternatives. Some of the alternatives are just as bad as BPA, if not worse. So we, we have to have alternatives out there. But I think it's, it's important to note that BPA is very dangerous to human health. I mean, and that's been shown, especially to infants uh, and young children. Mm-hmm. And it's been banned from baby bottles and toddler cups in Canada, Europe, and the U.S. And in fact, in 2015, France banned BPA in all food containers. Right. So there is some recognition that this is a problem that needs to be addressed. Mm-hmm. And I think your point is really important to reiterate, and that is that the BPA-free label that we see on many products does not ensure that that product is not lined with some sort of endocrine disruptor. I have pretty much ruled out canned food in my diet, and if I want beans, I use organic beans, and I cook them in advance and then put them in the freezer for later use. So there are ways to work around this, but it takes a little food preparation know-how to do it. Yes, absolutely. And plastics that are, are left in hot cars or things like that, we the leaching is, is a huge concern. So these things that we can do to buy BPA-free and also be aware that when we don't have to use canned foods to select an alternative as possible. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to jump to a different topic again. This has to do with some of your research into certifiers and inspectors in the organic world. And I think that this is one area of consumer confusion, as well as an area where consumers should look at the organic label as saying, wow, this is really something I can trust. I really like that there is a third-party inspection with organic food. And I don't believe that there's any other label, and you correct me if I'm wrong, that has a third party independent coming in and making sure that people are following the rules. What would you like to let our listeners know about this? Yes, to become a certified organic farmer or food manufacturer, there are quite a few steps that have to be undertaken. And the first is that you will come up with what they call an organic system plan, which outlines the nature of of your farm, your business, what you propose to do, and the methods you're going to use. And an inspector, an organic inspector, will verify that you're in compliance or document, the inspector actually documents what's being done on the farm or elsewhere and provides that report to a certifier. 
and the certifiers hire inspectors. And certifiers are accredited by the USDA. So we have this sort of multi-layer system of certification. But yes, inspectors have a very important job out there, as do certifiers. And that's why it's so important that they're always in compliance with the USDA regulations. Mm-hmm. And I think that consumers need to understand that it's a very time-consuming practice to become an, a certified organic farmer because farmers have to keep incredibly detailed records in order to maintain that certification. So when people go to the market and they say, wow, this organic food is really more expensive, I think there needs to be a level of understanding about why and that it does ensure an additional level of trust. But when we hear about fraud in the organic marketplace, I think it clouds all organic foods, and which is why I'm so glad that you've taken a role in keeping abreast of these issues and keeping our thumb on fraud and preventing it from happening, because it poisons the whole well, doesn't it? Well, it really does. And there's so many great and ethical producers, uh, companies out there that a few bad apples can really hurt the whole organic sector. And I think it's important, though, that we have to have to identify those bad actors and make sure that they're sanctioned and that the law is followed because what we don't want to have happen is that a problem go on for so long or go unaddressed. And really, there's more damage at that point than there is to having said something about it earlier even though questions exist. But I think it's it's important for people to know that there are great and ethical organic producers out there, and this is certainly not a problem that's affecting the entire organic industry. Exactly. Let me ask you about imported produce also. I've certainly heard from consumers that they're a little leery about accepting something that's organic coming in from, say, Peru or Mexico versus that which is produced and consumed here in the United States. Do you have any thoughts on imported organic produce that you would like to share? Well, technically under the law, if it's labeled organic, it has to go through the same legal requirements that food here in the U.S. would have had to been inspected under. So the U.S. has different agreements with different countries, but to make a long story short, it should meet the same standard. There have been issues of fumigation at the border, and that's usually where a problem might come up, is that some produce is fumigated with a prohibited chemical under the organic rules, and that's done either as a matter of course or some pest or pathogen of some sort was found. But those cases are not so widespread that you to say that you cannot trust imported product. I always encourage people to buy local. I think it's great for local economies and communities and to know your farmer. So to that extent, I think buying local is, is a good choice. Mm-hmm. And especially local organic, because then you don't have to ask the local farmer so many questions about what they're using or not. And personally, I I was lied to on one occasion. And then that just made me want to 
go to the organic certified farmer even more because I didn't have to ask a lot of questions, which can sometimes be uncomfortable in the marketplace. Yes, it, it really can. It can um, it kind of feel like uh, <laughs> you're you're suspicious in some way, which isn't necessarily the case. It's just a matter of seeking information, but it's not always a comfortable conversation to have. I agree. Yeah. So your local organic farmer is probably going to be your best source of the freshest, most nutritious food. And then what I say to consumers is, you know, if you can't find something locally from an organic farmer, then you can try to find it in a a larger kind of marketplace. But knowing that those standards are being upheld is critically important for the consumer. You've got this policy background. So in our last few minutes together, I'd really like for you to talk about any policies that you feel most passionate about in protecting or, you know, how can we join together to work for a safer more reputable food system? Yes, that's a, that's a great question because there's so many issues that need addressing. I think one of the most important issues out there is not only food insecurity. We hear a lot about that. One in seven Americans is, is food insecure, meaning they're worried about where they uh, might get their next meal or don't know. I think we also have to talk about nutrition insecurity and When I say that, what I mean is even when we have access to food, it's not always healthy, in fact, or nutritious. In fact, in in many ways, it's having the exact opposite effect. So I think we need to find ways to get high-quality food to, to all people. And organic should not be just a, just, just something accessible by people who have the means to buy it. We need to find ways to get this out to all people. Mm-hmm. Yes, and I believe the USDA's cost share program was going to be debated. Do you know where that stands? I don't know where that stands. I'll have to check on that. Yeah, it's important for those to know, listeners to know that the USDA provides money for state departments of agriculture to help cover certification costs for organic farmers. And it was my understanding that the percentage of that that funding was going to be cut back. And so the organic community was saying, you know, we need to call our local representatives and let them know that this is important. This is an important way for farmers to continue to provide organic food for more people. So we have to, I think the NOSB, the National Organic Standard Board, those meetings are really important to pay attention to. And I know that's something that you do. And if we want to learn more, where would we go? You can go to cornucopia.org, and there are many explanations of important issues affecting organic. Um, so I encourage people to, to check that out and see. And I know we have some information about the cost share on there as well. Fantastic. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for being my guest. I need to thank our listeners for joining us. Remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn for KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. We have been speaking with Ms. Ann Ross. She is an attorney with an advanced degree in agriculture and food law. She has been an advisor for the Cornucopia Institute, and she is based in sunny San Diego, California. And thank you so much for your time and expertise today. Thank you so much.